In the very early morning hours of September 1st, 1985, Robert Ballard's remote-operated vehicle named Argo picked up the first images of Titanic's debris field ever, and no one had set sight on any part of the ship since April 15th, 1912. Ballard recalls that as they passed over more of the wreckage, the crew on board the ship the Nor began celebrating with Portuguese wine. I mean, who would blame them? And Ballard began to worry about their focus. So he had them bring Argo quickly back up closer to the surface so that the precious cargo of this ROV would not immediately end up as part of Titanic's wreck as well. It would be rather easy to romanticize this epic moment, truly epic historical moment, as something random, faded, in the stars, so to speak, but it was anything but. It was an incredibly calculated moment, calculated by oceanographer and explorer Robert Ballard himself. National Geographic was actually on board ready to process photos from this expedition. Equipment like Argo had been specifically designed for tasks like this and had been in the works for years and years. What nobody knew in 1985 is that Ballard was actually out because of a top-secret Navy Cold War mission that allowed him to also look for Titanic, and the public wouldn't find that out for many years. This was... Ballard's dream come true. For 12 long years, he said at that point, I tried to get people interested in my dream. Thoughts of the Titanic just wouldn't leave me alone. I knew I had to find that ship. He wrote those words in 1988, a few years later. One of the members of the French team that he co-found the Titanic with, a man named Jean-Louis Michel, said, At the moment of discovery, it was not luck. We earned it. Michelle had actually had a little bit of bad luck, you could argue, as the month prior during the French part of the expedition, when the team was on the French vessel, they had actually missed Titanic, they later found out, by about 300 meters. So it would be Ballard who, despite the fact that this mission was the product of the work of dozens and hundreds of people over the years behind the scenes, it would be Ballard who would emerge from this triumphant discovery as a bit of a hero in American minds, a frontiersman of the deep sea variety. And we will unpack that. And interestingly, Ballard has made statements in recent years that, contrary to those statements in 1988, that Titanic was not his whole dream and that his reputation as the man who found Titanic has become a bit of an albatross around his neck. This is a tale of discovery. This is a tale of hero making. This is a tale of narrative making. This is a tale of science and painstaking work. 
This is the story of how Robert Ballard found the Titanic and how a million other puzzle pieces had to fall in place for that to happen. It's quite a lot to cover. Are you ready? (laughs) I'm LA Beatles and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is episode eight, The Coldest Frontier, Robert Ballard and the discovery of the wreck of Titanic. So I went straight to a pretty direct source for this episode for a lot of the content I want you to know, and that is the prolific amount of autobiographical material that we have from Robert Ballard. He's written two long main memoirs, one called The Discovery of the Titanic, published in the 80s, of which there have been multiple updated editions, I believe, and then all the way through line to a a main one that came out just this year that he wrote during COVID, I believe, and was published in 2021. And that's called Into the Deep. And in between those two, you have a vast array of National Geographic articles about his discovery of Titanic and his other work. You've got speeches that are available on YouTube. You've got you know, discussions that he's led. It's, there's so much directly from Ballard in terms of methodology. The choice I had to make was just, you know, how do I balance all of that material with analysis, with other sources? And I hope I did a good job. I think in terms of the discovery of the wreck of Titanic and the events leading up to it, he is our most valuable source. Of course, (laughs) there's always there it's always a bit problematic when you are reading the memoir of someone who is known for doing something and that's the thing they're writing about. We've talked about this before with sources. Memory is often very fallible. Uh, the creation of narratives is something we'll talk a lot about in this episode. And and rightly so, as he has every right in the world to, Ballard has his own ideas about what his place in history is. And as he looks back on those events of the 70s and 80s leading into finding Titanic, and I mean, he put in the work. He did so much work to find Titanic that you cannot fault him for having very definitive things to say about how it should be viewed, how it should, how the wreck should be treated. And, and we'll talk more about that. So I just want you to know I'm aware. I used a lot of, of his memoirs for this, but I, I cross-referenced, for lack of a better term, a lot. I read what other people had to say about him as well. One big hole in the methodology here is that I could not locate any direct sources from Jean-Louis Michel, who was the main scientist on the French team that co-found the wreck. As we'll speak about, there's a lot of 
debate about what their relationship ended up being and what happened. I wish I had a direct source from him. I cannot tell you how many times when I was writing this episode that I thought to myself, I I need to know what Michelle's perspective is here. I need to know what he was thinking. And I do not know that. And if anyone has any sources from him that might be in French, and that's the other thing, I, I can't really search in French and I don't speak French. So if anyone does speak French and has sources, please let me know. I will do an episode on him. Would love to if I had the material and the sources. He's an extremely important figure in this as well. All that said, (laughs) I really think one of the opening anecdotes in his latest memoir is is a great thing to start with here in, in Ballard's latest memoir. So it opens with a phone call he had with his mother in 1985, after he finds Titanic. And one more thought about sources. Remember how we've, I've talked about how hesitant I am to include material that is people, you know, remembering an entire conversation that they didn't record or write down at the time, but that they're writing about years later. So take it with a grain of salt. But this book, Into the Deep, the new one, opens with a phone call that he had with his mom after finding Titanic. And he says that she said to him, it's too bad. Now they're only going to remember you for that rusty old boat. And I think it's really crucial that he opens up a 2021 memoir with that anecdote. And in the introduction, he also goes on to emphasize very heavily how much more to his story there is finding other shipwrecks, Lusitania, Bismarck, Yorktown, tracing ancient trade routes in the Mediterranean and Black Sea, pulling up Roman and Greek artifacts, we'll talk about this, developing robots that roam the ocean floor, and creating experiences for school children all over the world. And so in 2021, and Robert Ballard is is now 79, he was born the same year that my father was, actually in 1942, and he is very much looking back on an entire career and life spent in the water. He wants us to know that his life is not just Titanic. So let's roll back though. Let's roll back. (laughs) If this were a documentary, it would be that moment where you'd hear the um, rewind sound on like a tape recorder. They'd play like a nostalgia old timey rewind sound and we'd, we'd get back to the beginning of his life. So Ballard was born in Kansas seven months after Pearl Harbor when his father was about to start a job as a supervisor at a Wichita Boeing plant that made B-29s. Then a job took the family to the Los Angeles suburbs. So he's in SoCal. He also lived briefly, his family also lived briefly in the Mojave Desert. And his dad worked alongside in some quite thrilling missions, Chuck Yeager and other renowned test pilots. But according to Ballard, his mother was not crazy about that. And they ended up back in California. Ballard's dad's parents had died young. And he said his dad was very silent about that, didn't talk about his past a lot, that he had dropped out of school, Ballard's dad had at some point, but eventually made himself into an engineer, rising to chief engineer for North American aviation. There's this great story at the beginning of the book, too, that Ballard says his mom said in these sunny California days when he was a toddler, they would roam around outside all day without much supervision. And he claims he was only two or three years old when this happened, but that he would climb over a fence and his mom would get a call. She'd think he was still in the backyard and she'd get a call from the grocer down the street who said, 
you know, your kids here again. (laughs) And apparently she would go get him, bring him home. And it would just be a matter of a few moments before she realized he was headed off there again. And I think it's, number one, you will hear a lot of similar stories about a young James Cameron when we talk about him. I do think it's a personality type. But two, I think it's very important to note that Ballard is starting this memoir of his with this story about the sort of pugnacious ways that he has always never given up. So Ballard writes a lot about growing up in the shadow of an older brother named Richard, who by all accounts is just as Ballard is very, very, very brilliant. And apparently their dad took Richard to meet the engineers at his job, not Bob. And I'm going to say Bob Robert sort of interchangeably. I've seen him referred to to both and referring to himself as both. Ballard said that he didn't spend that much time with his dad. There's an absent father theme that I think Ballard will grapple with on the other end later, and we'll talk about that. He also had a sister named Nancy, who was born with a genetic transmutation from birth that made her unable to speak. She had a jaw malformation, but she was able to do a lot of things, uh, take care of her allowance, uh, participate in family gatherings and vacations, have a very meaningful relationship with her brothers. Uh, Ballard would later be the one who DNA profiled her to understand her condition. But this is obviously when she's much older and he's much older because she would confound, he said she would confound the doctors with the combination of things that she was able to do and not able to do. So it's a very rare genetic condition. And apparently the family did a very good job of embracing her as she was and including her in everything that they did. And his dad even named their boat after her, the Nancy Ann. Ballard writes a lot about this moment where he saw 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and that he wanted to be Captain Nemo. It's a very important moment from his childhood. He recalls these, quote, good years growing up in what he calls the swing of the American century. His dad bought a 32-foot wooden cabin cruiser he writes, and named it Nancy Ann. And we, quote, headed out to sea pretty much every summer weekend. And I think that's a, it's kind of a beautiful moment to think of this family in the 1950s headed out to sea. Also important to do sort of a privilege check on that. I think it's in in the narrative of Ballard's life, it's important to note here that he's very fortunate to be born into a family that values science and education and is prospering enough that he is able to go to sea at this young age and gain this experience. And that's a huge privilege, which he does recognize. He admittedly grew up in an Eisenhower Republican household. He's he's written about this and spoken about this and admits that larger waves of social unrest and civil rights were not, he felt, at his doorstep. And again, sort of a privilege check, but he felt when he was younger kid, teenage years, he didn't really understand what was going on in the greater world in terms of that because he was living in quite a sheltered bubble at the time in California and in the circle that he lived in. He got a summer program sort of internship at Scripps, which is a renowned institution of oceanography. He was able to meet 
with some of the people that worked there through connections from his dad. And so he was working for them as a teenager in the summer, and he spent his 17th birthday out at sea on a mission with them. He knew he wanted to be an oceanographer, but that was a grad degree. And so the undergrad route that he felt he needed to sort of design to get where he wanted to go was less clear. He ended up going to UC Santa Barbara and studied geology and chemistry. There's a lot of detail, especially in the more recent memoir, the 2021 one, Of these years in his life, he obviously thinks it's very important to include a detailed account of college life. He was in a fraternity. He was in the ROTC. Obviously, we're about to talk about his military involvement. And he goes into such detail as even to recount a breakup that he goes through with a college sweetheart and that the result of that breakup was that he sort of dug into scuba diving more so than he had previously and that that became it sounds like almost therapy for him so if you if you're interested in the minutia of his life the minutia for him is there he writes about things in a very detailed way so he applied to scripts for grad school this was part of his grand plan he had thought out you know here are the steps that I'll take to get where I want to go and scripts was a part of that he did an interview with a man named Fred Spee who was director of the Marine Physical Laboratory. Spies had survived 13 sub-patrols during World War II, obviously was very important person at Scripps and in the field. And Ballard, Ballard, though, calls him essentially a bit cold and clinical and sort of pinpoint Spies for maybe being one of the reasons he was rejected from Scripps, even after having done the summer program with him with them pri- previously he found out that one of the reasons he was rejected also was that his undergrad professors lamented his focus on what he calls the social quote whirl and a lack of focus on striving for above and beyond uh, on his grades on some of his work his brother in the meantime he points out was already working on his phd in particle physics at Berkeley. So again, this minutia, this step-by-step process he goes through of realizing that perhaps a plan he'd laid out carefully wasn't going to pan out exactly as he thought. I think at this time, he starts to realize that he learns a little differently from other people. And that's something that will pop up again much later down the road. So he actually ended up at a grad program at the University of Hawaii. And during the summers there, he would train dolphins at the Oceanic Institute near Honolulu, which is part of Sea Life Park. He also helped with the research. He had a very, it sounds like very vibrant life during this period in Hawaii, where he was kind of a man about town, (laughs) uh, enjoying the social scene, but also buckling down and sort of doing some of this more manual labor type of work at the Dolphin Park, learning the ins and outs of the ocean. He also meets his first wife, Marjorie Hargis, and remember this for a call back later, but he says at the time, he was so impressed with her because she was so gutsy and that she'd set out to explore the world. That's while she was in Hawaii. So he'd been in ROTC and delayed service. He actually transferred into the Navy, he said, after he started to hear from former friends 
in the ROTC about the experiences in the Army in Vietnam. So he transfers to the Navy, assigned to the Office of Naval Research's Boston location as a liaison officer with research scientists on several campuses, including Scripps' rival, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, which is about to be a major setting. If this whole episode is the movie in your head, just think of Woods Hole off Cape Cod as a setting. As much as you can imagine an oceanographic institute in your head, I've, <laughs> I've never been to one. So I googled images. It is in a really beautiful part of the country. You should maybe Google some images right now so you can sort of have this setting in your head. It's going to be a big player as we move forward. So at Woods Hole, he gets to know Alvin, which is a submarine capable of carrying three people and I will say at this point in sub history, mostly men, <laughs> it's going to carry mostly men down to explore the ocean. And at this point, it could take people down 6,000 feet, but that's going to go up. He also starts hanging out with a group called the Boston Sea Rovers, which sounds silly, but it's it's not at all. It's a very prestigious dive club. They would dive the freezing North Atlantic. And there's this great story as in, in the re recent memoir, where he said they would go out and they would hunt for lobsters in this freezing part of the North Atlantic. And then they would take them to a deserted island, fill a trash can with moss, cook the lobsters, and then dive back into the water to wash off the butter. And I... I will say I've read a lot of what Ballard has written over the last few weeks. In fact, this episode is late, really, because everything got away from me because there's so much to read, just straight from him even, like I said. And I things started to feel really monotonous. He's He writes a lot of the same uh, memories and things over again. And the way he conceptualizes his professional history is a lot of repetition. But this was one story I'd never seen before. And these are my favorite moments when I read a memoir, when I go through sources. I Those are the moments I want to know about someone's life. Because if you are writing this many years later about a moment where you, you know, ate fresh lobster on a deserted island and had to wash off butter from your hands, that's it in seawater. That's a moment in your life. That's a that's a window into someone's soul. I love that story. Just had to mention it. So he says the members daydreamed and spoke about shipwrecks a lot. And at one meeting, he recalls a member going on and on about how elusive the Titanic would be. It's important, just like we checked privilege earlier, it's important to say that this is a club that has a code, you know, this is the Boston Sea Rovers and also just oceanography at this point at clubs of divers at this point. It's very male. It's very white. And also there's this small group of men who have the skill set of diving or have the skill set of having access to submarines. So it's a, it's a club. It is. And and the stories that they're telling one another and the hopes and the dreams that they're sharing one another. It's not to discount those at all. Of course, those obviously are are, are Im so important. But it is important to remember that it's the small little niche milieu that he's in, which is a huge part of the process of finding Titanic. So he claims that even in the 60s, he's already talking about Titanic. And I believe it because if you have a group like the Sea Rovers of these men who 
love diving, are passionate about it, are passionate about shipwrecks, it's a pretty lucrative bet to make that they were sitting around talking about Titanic because A Night to Remember had been published, the movie had been made, there had in the late 50s been this, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, a huge resurgence in everything Titanic, a renewed obsession with it as a sort of symbol of man's hubris, a huge resurgence in interest in, you know, the passengers and all the history. And so I I bet these men were sitting around and talking about Titanic specifically. And again, he's in this milieu and that's what's going on. At this point, the Navy tells him basically he has to go full time or leave. So he decides to exit this military route and do a PhD instead. He couldn't go to Woods Hole for the PhD work because he was working there at the time working with them. So instead, he commuted to the University of Rhode Island School of Oceanography. As anyone who's ever done a grad degree or heard anything about it, you know that when you do, you've got to specialize in something, you've got to choose something to study, to write about, to focus on. And he works on Gulf of the Gulf of Maine's seabed and plate tectonics. The idea of dynamic changes in the Earth's crust over eons, this this is textbook now, right? This is, I mean, and I'm not a science person to be clear at all, never have been. I have to work really hard to understand scientific concepts. But even if you're someone like me who's like that, you know, plate tectonics is something that you remember from science class in eighth grade or 12th grade, whatever it may be. So this stuff is textbook now, but it was still hazy as a concept then in, you know, the 60s. He's working on very, very crucial work at this point in grad school. He has two sons during this time period, also with Margie, uh, his first wife, Doug and Todd, and he buys an old abandoned farmhouse in Falmouth, Massachusetts. In Falmouth, Massachusetts. I cannot pronounce Massachusetts. I can't do it. (laughs) Sorry. I'm going to leave this in and not edit this out because I need the world to know that I cannot pronounce that state. So he buys this abandoned farmhouse and there's something he mentions in his memoir that I think is brilliant. I mean, obviously he's a brilliant man. Here's his, one of his most brilliant statements. And I, I mean this. So he said that when he was working on his PhD work and studying for, you know, orals exams, which I mean, I, not everyone knows what that is. I shudder when I say the word because I had to do it. It's been many years ago now. But uh, you essentially have to read uh, hundreds of books in your field. And then you have to sit in a room with tenured professors who ask you questions about your entire field. And it's it's very scary. So he was working, researching, uh, studying, and he also wanted to work on this farmhouse. And what was fun for him at the time was the physical labor of working on um, the renovations of this home that he had bought. So what he would do is he would do a 45-minute, 15-minute setup, and he would study and do schoolwork for 45 minutes and on a timer, and then he would switch and he would do 15 minutes of housework and and move his body. And I think that's brilliant. I've sort of, in the past, I've adapted similar strategies, like 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off, or I don't know, but 
just to see him lay it out the way he did and describe that division of labor of, you know, using the mind for 45 minutes, and then kind of the body for 15 minutes, I sort of I recommend it. I've been trying it a little bit. Something really important here is that he starts to mention in his own personal narrative that Margie, his wife, didn't go to college, hadn't gone to college, and didn't fit in with his, quote, intellectual types that he was now interacting with. So he is setting up this dichotomy between him and her in terms of intellectualism. And he also says that he realizes looking back that he was raised by a housewife, his mom was a housewife, and so he had married a housewife. But I also think it's interesting that earlier in the memoir, when he first meets her, he's speaking of how gutsy she is and how enamored he was of her that she was exploring the world. So, I mean, she stopped exploring the world in order to follow him to various spots so that he could pursue his career in the Navy and then his education. So, I don't know. There's a little bit of a, hey, stop the record. Let's let's talk about the ways in which women are talked about in this narrative. So I do, I don't know these people personally, and likely never will love to meet Robert Ballard. Hopefully one day, I truly would love to speak with them. So I won't delve too much into their marriage, even though to be clear, he writes about it a lot. So he definitely is fine with all of us knowing some of the ins and outs of his relationships. And also he writes so much of dealing with an absentee father when he's young, but then something he struggles with once he has kids is how much he's at home too. And we'll talk some more about this, but he is away from home a lot. And so I think that's why it's such a through line in his narrative is that he's in all junctures of his life. It's It's been something I think that's that's been on his mind. So it is then that he becomes involved in something called Project Famous, French, um, the French-American Mid-Ocean Undersea Study. And this is a crucial, this is a crucial step towards the Titanic story in his life. So the sub Alvin that he's gotten to know at Woods Hole that he's been working with is outfitted with titanium in its hull. So it doubles its diving depth to 12 thousand feet and it'll eventually be more. At this time, he also meets John Louis Michel because they're collaborating with with the French. And it is a mission that has to do with the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is an enormous underwater mountain range running down the middle of the Atlantic Ridge, part of an even bigger undersea range that extends 40,000 miles around the world. And in July 1974, he is about to get into Alvin again in the coming days when he does finish his PhD. That summer, he dove down in Alvin almost every day for seven weeks, taking rock samples and mapping. And really, their work in Project Famous was the final nail in the coffin for anyone who still doubted the plate tectonics theory, because they documented that process along the Mid-Atlantic 
Ridge. In 1977, near the Galapagos off the coast of Ecuador, he and his team discover enormous red worms. I'm not making this up. Some eight feet long, which cluster of the worms cluster around hot water springs. 1979, off Baja, found black smokers, which are underwater vents that belch out hot fluid, hot enough to melt lead, apparently, and then shoots it straight from the ocean floor through chimneys of lava. And at this point, he starts publishing with National Geographic, and he starts taking flack for that. And let me explain why. And if you are an academic or have been in the world of academia, you probably already know why. So as an academic, you typically, the, the accepted sort of road, especially towards tenure, is to publish in academic journals very specifically, and to gear your research and your writing towards an academic audience and to, I'm going to just to put it in layman's terms, to, you know, to footnote everything, to be in conversation with the history of the people who have written about the things you're writing about before. And in, in academic history, as a discipline, we call that historiography. And I've, I've never been in a science program, and I know that science programs differ wildly from humanities programs, which is the one I, you know, I did. I did a PhD in history. But in general, that is the accepted thing. That is the more traditional route, that if you are looking for tenure at an academic institution, you are publishing in journals that are respected by your peers. And and in a lot of academic disciplines, if you leave that path to publish in more popular publications or participate in things like, you know, consulting on films, TV shows, in history, the equivalent would be, you know, more participating in public history dialogues uh, or more publishing in more publishing a popular history, like say an Eric Larson or something like that. And again, I know I keep using the analogy in terms of the history discipline, but it's all that I know. But in terms of Robert Ballard, this is what you need to know. Oh, that was terrible. I'll leave it in so that I can remind myself to explain things better. <laughs> but basically, one path, strictly academic publications. But Ballard takes another path. Very deliberately at this point in the 70s, he chooses to participate in a relationship with National Geographic, so very popular publication. So he is publishing for a general, wider, popular audience, frowned upon by many academics. And he also participates in things like this. <laughs> he goes to uh, Scotland to investigate the Loch Ness Monster. They are looking for someone with his scientific background to come and do an investigation of the water, um, the waves, the to look underneath the surface to see if they can find an explanation for the Loch Ness Monster. So he takes this job and he takes his family to Scotland. They, they turn it into a vacation. And he admits, looking back, that he obviously took this very commercial job for profit and for fun and also to incorporate his science background into a task that could be enjoyable for the public, uh, creating entertainment. And this is a, this is a life becomes a lifelong thing for him where he wants to make science accessible to children and accessible to the general public. I know that it's coming off in spots here that I'm being a little bit critical of 
of Ballard. I, I hope that you don't think that comes from any sense of malice. What I'm trying to do is analyze his life in a historical context. I am trying to present a multi-sided view of the man and the time he lived in and where he came from and how he gets to Titanic. I don't mean to sound negative, And if I have been, gosh, I apologize. I I very much look up to Robert Ballard. I think everything he's accomplished is phenomenal. But I do think as a historian, my job is to analyze these different parts of his life and contextualize. I will be clear, this is one area of his life that I will, I am 100% only positive and only in support of, which is I think there is too much of an emphasis in academia on keeping information and experiences gatekept behind the academic curtain. I think that that dichotomy that, oh, if you're an academic, you can't write a popular book, that is so harmful to the general public. And and I say this having been in academia for many years and interacting with a lot of academics and uh, and so and and I can only speak to my experience and again mine is in humanities but there is a real problem with elitism there is a real problem with the conceptualization of quote real history is the scholarly journals that are written in such a technical that the articles are written in such a technical manner that an average person cannot understand them and I'm not arguing for those not existing but what I am arguing for is like the work of someone like Ballard, who is making an effort to bridge those two worlds, that those two worlds don't have to represent some sort of dichotomy. And that's what he was doing by working with Nat Geo, by doing something like the Loch Ness Project. I'm sure a lot of academics turned their nose up, but he really got in there, wanted to break open that relationship. And I think that's wonderful because what is the point of studying, whether it's history or whether it's underground black smokers like he was studying, or it's a shipwreck, or it's quantum physics, any anything, literature, anything. What is the point of being passionate and studying if your work that you produce and the conclusions that you come to are accessible to the average person who might want to learn? It's also this whole dichotomy of academic versus not academic. It also is really insulting to the average person because it's implying that the average person can't handle history or science or whatever it may be. But if you just write in the language that an average person can understand, then you open up that person's world. I don't know. I just, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this. In fact, I will reveal something about myself right here. I was joking with my husband earlier today, and and I want to tell this story. In reading about Robert Ballard, I have read several of his memoirs. I've watched so many of his Nat Geo specials. I have read so many articles that he's written. But even after weeks and months of research, I was still having a hard time understanding the ins and outs of Project Famous or of the Black Smokers or of uh, some of the technology behind his robots, his ROVs, and which we're about to talk about. And then I got this kid science thing that he wrote in 1988. It's a time quest book. It's basically aimed towards, I'd say, middle grade readers, explains the science of what he's worked on. And it's about, you know, going, you know, quote, going back to Titanic, 
I read that and I finally understood it all. So I'll reveal that about myself. I mean, I have a PhD in American history, but my brain has huge blind spots and I have a hard time understanding technical processes. And so I went to a kid's book to understand it. So just to share that story to let you know that we all learn the way that we do, that ties in with what Ballard's doing. So anyway, that's a long tangent, but it's important. And I I might come back in another episode after I calm down a little bit and have a more eloquent way to say everything I I just said, but it's really important. This all ties into what happens next, which is he goes to his tenure meeting. He heard about what happened in the tenure meeting secondhand. So again, let's remember how how we take sources that are memories of conversations. We consider them carefully. He claims that he meets up with his old foe. I don't say foe, but kind of makes it seem that way. Spice, the one who rejected him at Scripps, is in the meeting. And apparently Spice called him a publicity hound, going back to everything we've just been talking about. But apparently Spice was the deciding vote because someone else in the room said, hey, but if he was at your organization, would you give him tenure? And Spice had to admit that yes, he would based on Ballard's work. So that just tells you right there what you need to know, that people in the profession were doubting him because of his tendency to work with these more popular publications and organizations. But when it came down to it, he was doing the academic quality work that mattered. So in the late 70s, he begins to actively think about finding Titanic. I think it's interesting that, especially in recent memoirs, he's not very specific about how he got to some moment where he said to himself, oh, I want to go find Titanic. It's very much portrayed as a as a slow developing process over the 60s and 70s. And I don't, I wish I could pinpoint one aha moment for one, but I, for him, but I I haven't read of one. He actually is interestingly contacted by a company in 1977 called Big Events that is, has decided to look for the wreck. And this is how he meets a man named William Tantum, who was president of the Titanic Historical Society at the time. The company, Big Events, wanted to market things like paperweights from pieces of the wreck. So Tantum and Ballard become friends and they connect over this love of Titanic, but they back away from this organization for obvious reasons. Woods Hole thought that pursuing the project like Titanic was too popular, here we go again, and would undermine the dignity of the organization. But the director, Paul Fye, didn't want anyone else discovering it. So he was sort of okay with it. But then a new director named John Steele would come in and he forbade Ballard from working on finding Titanic. So he gets a group of people together on his own. And he calls it Sionics International. And Tantum is part of this group. And they talk to Disney at one point. They talk to Jack Grimm at one point, who, if you remember, uh, we've mentioned before in Raise the Titanic and a couple of other episodes, he was a Texas oil millionaire who wanted to find the Titanic. He'd also previously famously looked for Bigfoot and Noah's Ark, but he had so much money that he actually was attracting some top scientists for the Titanic mission because he had he had the money to buy the right equipment. So scientists were actually working with him, but Ballard and Tantum decided not to. I think that was a very good decision. Guess who Jack Grimm manages to recruit? Spice. <laughs> Ballard's foe. And he also gets a William Ryan, a marine geologist from Columbia. So he's got 
pedigreed people. And the Grimm expedition went out in 1980, but was hindered by bad equipment and bad weather. And Ballard's tone is very competitive when he talks about Jack Grimm and the others looking for a Titanic, which comes, this is another like fork in the road moment of explaining Ballard. Fork in the road may not be the right terminology. Okay. I would say alternate narratives. So there's definitely one narrative that Ballard has espoused that is, I was obsessed with Titanic. She's my dream. I mean, I read some of the quotes at the beginning of the episode to you. I have to find Titanic. I have to find Titanic. This is, this is, you know, this epic crux of my life. But also he has written recently more about Titanic just being part of, you know, this longer journey that he's on. It's sometimes confusing with Ballard to decide where to land. Like what where, you know, what are his real feelings about Titanic? Is it something he was up late at night obsessing over? Or was it something that is just kind of part of this career that he's had and he has made a lot of money off of Titanic and a lot of personal fame has been garnered off of Titanic, so he feels sort of a allegiance to it. It's hard to know where to fall sometimes with him on that. But I will say that the way in which he writes about the competition quote to find Titanic, how riled up he gets in writing about Grimm and some of the other people that were trying to do this, leads me to believe that it's the first that Titanic was something that obsessed him and kept him up at night. And it seems to have driven him absolutely mad, the idea that anyone might get to Titanic before he did. So he goes to the Navy for funding. The Navy is very interested in the equipment that Robert Ballard is developing. They have some subs, some Cold War subs that were downed. They and one of them actually with nuclear weapons on board. This is the Scorpion and the Thresher. And Titanic becomes sort of part of a package deal. It becomes part of a cover story. The Navy basically says that they will fund his building of Argo. Remember Argo, the ROV that will pretty soon here, send images of Titanic up. And it actually is a part of a whole system called Argo Jason, named after, of course, Jason and the Argonauts. Argo is the mythical Greek vessel that carried Jason on his quest for the Golden Fleece. In 1985, Argo is really representing this new generation of exploratory vehicles for the ocean, parts of the ocean floor, parts that had never, ever been explored before. This is a big deal. So Argo is developed at Woods Hole with funds provided by the Office of Naval Research as part of Argo, an Argo Jason system that would allow the Navy to explore the things that they wanted to, and also allow Ballard as a side project to explore something he wanted to, Titanic. And this system could acquire wide-angle film and television, moving pictures, while flying 50 to 100 feet above the seafloor and towed from a surface vessel. And you could like zoom in and get detail. This was a big deal that it would be sent up. It was unmanned, tethered, and it would be sent, the images would be sent up directly streaming to the ship. So through the Navy, he basically finally had the money to create a deep sea sub lab at Woods Hole. He has at this point in the 70s and 80s, and to this day, he still writes about it a lot, 
that he was a proponent of moving away from man subs in a way and exploring the viability of essentially a telepresence on the ocean floor. That if you go down in a man sub, it's only a certain amount of time you can spend down there because you have to go down, come back up. Travel time is like a very slow elevator, takes a lot of time, hours. And then you only have a certain amount of time at the bottom because of restrictions in your sub you know, oxygen, (laughs) namely for the people in it. So he already in the 1980s is a huge proponent of moving towards these unmanned vehicles that are tethered so that they can monitor the ocean floor. And I just think that that's so, even someone like me is not scientific at all. To me, that's very obvious how obvious how prescient that is and how ahead of his time and forward thinking he is in terms of a telepresence of the ocean floor. That's an amazing concept. Uh, And we'll talk about that again here soon. So he really, Ballard really has this dream of sending a robot down the grand staircase of Titanic. And he finally has the money to try to do that. Argo would be a scouting vehicle with two sonar systems and three video cameras that could operate in low light and stream video as it was recording. So this is going on. He's working hard. He's developing this system. In mid-1983, Grimm, Jack Grimm, shows up again like a -a whack-a-mole says Ballard. He so Ballard gets back in touch with John Louis Michel from the French team he's worked before with on Project Famous. And Michel had actually been developing a sonar system that could be towed behind a ship and scan huge chunks of the ocean floor. So the French team from the French Oceanographic Institute Ifremer, I-F-R-E-M-E-R, they come on board to work on this project as well. What's important too is that he's He's working on finding these subs with the Navy. And obviously, like I mentioned, that's a priority. The Navy has said, I will fund this technology if you find these subs for us. And that is completely 100% completed before you go try to find Titanic. And it actually proves crucial. Let's talk about all the puzzle pieces coming together. And not really luck because it's it's people working really hard to study processes. And that's not luck. But he does realize on the Thresher dive, and Thresher is one of the subs, he realizes that he can map debris and how it falls, that it wasn't a circle, that debris on a ship like this is more of a comet tail. Heavier objects go down straight, lighter objects sink at slower rates, and prevailing currents carry them further away. So through these dives with these subs, these Cold War subs that he's investigating, he begins to understand debris fields better, and that is crucial for what's about to happen. All of these (laughs) All of these components are in place, all very purposeful, but it does take, and again, it's not luck, but it does take all these pieces fitting together, the Navy funding, the French team being able to help his work on the Cold War subs, all sort of lines up to this moment in 1985. So the French team goes out on their ship first in July of 1985, and Ballard, when they started searching... (laughs) was, I will tell you, celebrating the 4th of July with Walter Cronkite Cronkite on Martha's Vineyard. (laughs) Interesting tidbit that he points out in his own book. And I will say, it's really interesting to me that in his earlier memoir in the 1980s, 
He actually has a longish chapter about his time on the French vessel, and he provides a lot more detail about what was accomplished on the French part of the trip and the relationships that he fostered and what that setting was. And I will say in in the most recent memoir, it's more of a jump to like, oh, French went out. I was on Martha Vineyard's cut to me coming in. So I will say that's, that's definitely a, a, dis- a narrative decision that he's making now. And I think you'll see why. So the French are doing this mowing the lawn technique. That's what they call it. The sonar finds objects by bouncing electronic sound waves off of them. They're towing John Louis' SAR sonar torpedo kind of equipment underwater, just above the ocean floor, like a kite on a two and a half mile string. That's how you should visualize this thing. Just mowing the lawn with this very long, long tether. And even an 882 foot ship like Titanic, you have to remember, is a speck on the ocean bottom, 13,000 feet below the ocean surface. A speck. Also at this time, Ballard starts thinking about his friend Will Tantum, who unfortunately died just before they went out on this mission. Tantum had shown him Jack Thayer's drawings of the sinking. If you remember, Jack Thayer is a very well-known first-class survivor. He was 17 when the Titanic went down. He was with his family traveling back to the United States. His mother was Marion Thayer, who had the 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 relationship in letters to Bruce Ismay after the sinking. He gets separated from his family and as a male stays on board at the end, he survives by latching on to the overturned collapsible that Officer Lightoller was on. And he wrote much later in life a memoir. He also at the time of the sinking is has put together these sketches of the sinking with someone he met on the Carpathia. And it's sketches of the ship breaking in half, which rails against the accepted theories that came out of the US and the UK inquiries of the sinking at the time. Most of the surviving officers and anyone sort of up in the ranks of the White Star Line testified that the ship had stayed intact. There also was a very political need (laughs) on the part of White Star to save face. The idea that their grand ship had broken in two as it went down was, let's just say, didn't sit well with the narrative at the time. What was accepted was that the ship was intact when it went down, even though a lot of eyewitness accounts of survivors, especially in second and third class, had testified to the contrary. But Jack Thayer here was a first class passenger who saw it break in half and drawings made of it. And somehow nobody had, historians had had never really explored that option fully, doesn't seem like. But Ballard really starts to think about those drawings that Will Tantum showed him, starts thinking, hey, this is a very real possibility that this ship is actually in two pieces. So he joins the French in July. They haven't found Titanic yet. (laughs) Originally, the idea is that he would come in with Argo and take the pictures. The idea was originally that the French would find it. And he writes about being willing to sort of sacrifice that moment of discovery to the French. And again, it's him feeding into this competition narrative that I would argue isn't necessary to propagate. He admits that he was 
a little sad about that. But in the end, the French don't find it when they're on when the the mission is on the French vessel. He actually comes in. They get on the ship, the Noor, which is the American ship. And now it's not just about taking photos of something the French found, but it's about him sort of being the leader now of this this mission to find Titanic. He arrives at the Titanic search site on August 24th, 1985. He decides to take Argo back to the east of the search area that they had sort of marked off. He sets lines of Argo's pathway roughly a mile apart, east to west. If the currents had carried Titanic's debris in a mile-long trail from north to south, he might be able to intersect as they worked north. This was his thought process. He used the position, the known position of the Titanic lifeboats and where they were picked up and knew that would have to be north of that point. So it's important to note that he calls John Louis, I think I've pronounced his name differently several times, I think it's John Louis, a partner and a friend through this process. In a 1988 publication that I ran across, he made a point to use a, a, a very, very, very poignant and friendly tone when it came to Michelle, to John Louis Michelle. But really now when he writes, he kind of draws a line between the two parts of the team, French and American. In an earlier autobiography, he mentions that Michelle actually spent a year at Woods Hole, which is a big deal that they you know, would have worked together for a year at Woods Hole at, at Ballard's home base. That's a big deal. But in more recent recollections and publications, he doesn't mention that. I think that's important. The interactions with him and the French team are a lot more vague in his recent memoirs. For the French, it was, we have to remember, it was was their main quest. They had developed this technology to find the Titanic. Jean-Louis Michel wanted to find the Titanic. Ballard was working with this cover story with the Navy, but just to be clear, the French weren't working under any cover story, really. They were decidedly going after Titanic. So for someone like Jean-Louis Michel, which I said, like I said, I wish I had more sources on, this is equally as important a part of his life. And it's a side of the story that is unfortunately missed by so many. But this is a this is this process is a co-production. <laughs> this is the finding of the wreck of Titanic is a co-production. So they're on the Nor now, the American vessel, towing Argo, which is like a steel sled that videos and streams the videos up. Towards the end, they've got five days left. They have been mowing the lawn, as they call it, for weeks and weeks. It's monotonous work. The men in the control room are tired. Their eyes hurt. Morale is down across the board on this ship. And they're just exhausted. But then on one middle of the night watch, September 1st, 1985, John Louis is is part of the watch that's on and he sees the first images of Titanic's Spoilers pop up. Ballard is actually in his cabin, which was next to the captain's, and he was having a restless night. Usually, he says, usually he sleeps really well and easily, but he was up because he couldn't sleep. He says he was reading Chuck Yeager's autobiography. That seems a little convenient, but let's go with it. And then a cook knocked on his door and said, Hey, they think you ought to go up to the control room. And this is that moment of celebration 
Everyone opens up the Portuguese wine. They all, by all accounts, kind of stare in wonder at one another that, again, this very monotonous process that they lost hope in by this point and suddenly not in the depths of this ocean where Titanic would be a pinprick of a speck they have found part of her and if you are a Titanic person which you obviously are if you're listening to this podcast and you are listening to an hour plus at this point of me talking about something like this thank you by the way I love it and I love doing this. If you are a Titanic person, then you obviously have at some point gone through that moment in your mind and imagined what it would have been like to be there for that moment of discovery. He also, Ballard, has a moment of remembrance in the middle of the night on September 1st. He becomes quiet and has an emotional sort of reckoning of what they've just discovered. And he takes a group out on the fantail for a small memorial service. They raise the Harlan and Wolf flag. Remember Harlan and Wolf is, is who built Titanic in Belfast. And he says that the night was calm, just the same as the night the ship went down. I will say that... This is a romanticized scene and a romanticized narrative that you see written about a lot. And it should be romanticized in one way. I mean, it's a magic moment. It's an epic moment in history. And there are survivors and survivors' children and victims' children of Titanic that get to see these images. And that's a whole nother revelatory sort of conversation. But I will say, just like we had the privilege check, we have to have a a gender check. We have to have a little bit of a gender check here because this narrative that you hear, to you know, told and retold about the discovery is very masculine. They refer to the bunk rooms as the boys' town. Uh, historian uh, Stephen Beale has pointed out that what happens in this setting is sort of a macho sentimentalism. Ballard definitely writes about it that way. That there's this, you know, they're this kind of hardened team of scientists doing the rough work and they hardly ever sleep and that they live on coffee and a dream essentially but that when they find titanic that sentimentality is is allowed allowed in just a little bit and that in my opinion plays in to a masculinity narrative that's a little bit dangerous right that the most important part of a man is that hard part that brave part that workhorse part and that that sentimentality is, you know, just oh, one little tear is allowed in the eye, in the eyes once in a while. But that you go back to, you revert back to the, the masculine stoicism. I just think it's it's a little dangerous. It's important. It's important to point out that men working in this milieu, women really hadn't had many inroads into this profession at this point. So it's a very masculine scenario. Just again, and then not even claiming that there is a lot of analysis to be had necessarily, except just to keep it in mind. It's always important to remember how far we've come and how far we still have to go in terms of gender equality, especially in, in professions 
like this. In the final days of this mission, it's actually storming and they're in the North Atlantic and storms are very common even in the calmer part of the year. It's storming too much to use Argo. So they revert to using Angus, which is what they called a dope on a rope camera. The images are blurry. They are worried about having to use this dope on a rope system where they're just taking pictures and then they have to bring them on board and develop them. It's not a stream. So their first images are terrible. They're running out of time. Ballard says he's so tired that he has to lay down in order to work, but they continue. They take more. They see... They take pictures of the forecastle deck, anchor chains clearly seen, crow's nest still attached to the fallen foremast. They finally get some images that seem quality enough to show to the world. And Nat Geo is on board the ship. The world is waiting to see these photos. Nor's bottom sounding sonar made contact with a hundred foot tall object north, part of Titanic's hull. They later realized that the French had missed the site in July by 3,300 feet. And apparently, according to Ballard, John Louis was inconsolable. And Ballard tried to be supportive and tell him we did this together. And he writes that a lot, that he consoled John Louis. My argument would be, though... That by pointing out this narrative and reprinting and rehashing this narrative of there being two teams, two parts of the expedition, I just, I feel like Ballard's participating in this narrative in which we understand it to be Ballard found it, the Americans found it. When really, from everything that I've read, there would be a way to just write this a different way (laughs) in a more sort of unified story. But it seems very political, seems very divisive, a topic too. So I won't dig in too much there. We'll talk about it more in a moment. But he's he does say that he consoles John Louis. And pretty soon, they are leaving the site. They've run out of time. Their funding is up. He Ballard tells the story of feeling during those days like he finally made a very deep emotional connection to Titanic. He writes about being interviewed by Tom Brokoff when he's still on the ship. And he looks up because there's there's tele, you know, like a tele interview. And he looks up and he realizes that the Nor is leaving the site and he hasn't said goodbye to Titanic yet. So he raises up and out of his chair and goes to look at the site one more time and to say goodbye. And I will say, in terms of luck, Finding Titanic was not luck, it was work, but Ballard does does admit, to his credit, he does admit that it was a luck in many ways that Titanic was located while it was him leading an American ship with the team on it. But again, <laughs> by distinguishing between these two timelines, with there being a French timeline and an American timeline, he's sort of feeding into that narrative. But he definitely supported at the time, and still mentions a lot to this day, the French having a co-finding status on this expedition. The reason that I have alluded to there being so much tension between the Americans and the French is what happens 
next. They had taken this group of photos that they wanted to release out in these, you know, PR statements or release out to news outlets, that sort of thing. And on the way back to Woods Hole, they'd sent a small batch of the photos to shore by helicopter, carried by one American and one French naval officer. And Ballard said they had a handshake deal that they'd wait to release photos, that both teams would wait to release photos until they'd arrived in Paris. But Steele, the director back at Woods Hole, apparently sort of buckled under some pressure and released them early to the U.S. media. And the French were angry and went on to try to block news conferences. And you can obviously understand why they were angry. I certainly can, just on a base level. Again, I don't have enough sources from the other side of this story to really come down with any kind of viable conclusion. It definitely seems like that moment of betrayal is enough to feed a breakup, for lack of a better term. But you're also left wondering, is there more to the story? Because he will never work with John Louis again. They don't ever go back to Titanic together. So I think it's one of those mysteries. You know, we when Steven Schwenkert was on a couple of months ago about the Chinese, speaking about the Chinese survivors of the Titanic, and we had that great conversation in which he pointed out there's so many so much contention with Titanic topics that if we can't even agree on the band and what the band was playing as the ship went down, then we're certainly never going to agree on on the more controversial topics around Titanic. And I think this is one of those that falls in that realm that Ballard is such a heroic figure in the Titanic historiography, in the Titanic tale at this point that it's viewed as it's downright bad to question him, which I think is dangerous, right? It's always really dangerous to put our heroes and the people that we look up to on such a pedestal that they're untouchable, because then we're no longer analyzing them. And we're no longer in, for lack of a better term, peer reviewing, you know, their narrative or their work, they become sort of untouchable figures. That's not conducive to good history. It's just not. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people, Ballard has become a figure like that untouchable. That should never happen. And that's one of the reasons why this episode is sort of framed the way that it is, is to tell the story from all all angles, all sides. So I wish I had the French sources. I wish I knew more about that moment in which there is this break. I think it's controversial to question it at all. <laughs> so probably some people are going to be mad at me right about now. But I do wish I knew. I wish I knew more about that moment and what happened with those photos or what else may have happened between the American and the French team. But we may never know. So moving on to something really important, which is that Ballard starts getting letters from school children from all over the world. He goes on a huge publicity tour. He tells this great story in his latest memoir about being at the White House with Princess Diana and John Travolta. (laughs) Definitely recommend reading this book just for that. And then a year later, he goes back. He goes right back to Titanic on the ship, the Atlantis II, with the sub Alvin. The French apparently had first agreed to join him on the return, but backed out, he says, last minute. And he actually uses the term jilted lover to describe 
this situation. So Ballard's obviously hurt by the French pulling away from the collaboration. And again, just doesn't feel like we know the full story. It's probably just a case of two very big personalities butting heads, but I just wish we had more details on the butting heads moment. Jason Jr. comes along, which is a prototype for Jason. And JJ is going to be deployed from the sub with a long cord to go into smaller places, like a little robot that can go into places like the Grand Staircase. At the time, Ballard's crew members made fun of him for an interview he had recently given saying that manned subs are doomed uh, because obviously they were taking Alvin the manned sub on this mission. Uh, one of the crew members actually baked a cake with those words, manned subs are doomed, manned subs are doomed on it and made Ballard eat this cake, like literally eat his own words. Again, those are the types of stories that I love. Love that. Ballard describes going actually down to Titan at this time in a manned sub and being with her in person. They descend down, they see the hole like a huge wall of steel. He says he, quote, felt like a space voyager peering at an alien city wall on some empty planet. It was his first trip down and they had trouble with Alvin, so they were only able to stay down for a few moments once they hit the bottom, and they had to head right back up, which was insanely frustrating. But they eventually make it back down and spend some time. They see wooden decks eaten away by millions of little wood-eating worms. They settle down on decks, scared, and it, it's dangerous because they don't know if these decks are going to hold the sub at first, but they do. JJ goes down, the staircase finds a perfectly preserved chandelier. They find Captain Smith's cabin. They go along the boat deck. They peer into first class cabins. Some of the windows are open and they describe, he describes this debris field. It's just, and you, you know, I, I urge you to look up these photos. They're online. They're very easy to find. They're also in the, in his autobiographies and the Nat Geo books. There's tons of Nat Geo books about the Titanic. Look at the debris field artifacts. He describes this debris carnage, this, the shoes where bodies fell, uh, champagne bottles that are somehow unopened, glasses, bowls, pipes, pots, pans, cook various, you know, types of cookware. It's just, you have to see these photos of of the debris field. It's pretty mind-blowing. If you've never seen them, please look them up immediately. So he describes this. It's very moving. He does point out that he's frustrated with how little time they're able to spend on the ocean floor because at this point they're in a manned sub. There are portholes with the glass still intact, light fixtures. There all of these things that are being seen for the first time since 1912. And keep in mind, this is only 75 years after the sinking. It's weird to think now that we're 110 years almost removed. It is strange to think that how close that still was at only 75 years after. And this is where a huge thread of the story comes into play. One, a thread that I won't be able to to give all the justice it deserves 
in this conversation. One podcast could not consume everything that needs to be said about it. But that is the question of bringing artifacts up from the ocean floor. And Ballard says at this point, quote, we had vowed and the Navy had insisted that we would bring up no artifacts whatsoever. As far as I was concerned, doing that would be tantamount to grave robbing. It's crucial to point out here that from my understanding of the international law of shipwrecks at that time. And actually, I I listened to a podcast with Robert Ballard a couple of weeks ago in which he talked about this in a little more detail, and I probably won't do a good job, as good a job as he did. But basically, any sort of laws, and using the word laws is weird in this situation, is not a lot of governance of shipwrecks. But basically, because the insur- because of the way that the insurance claims had been filed on Titanic, the insurance company had owned the wreck, essentially. The ownership had been passed on to them. And then they let that lapse. And so technically speaking, anybody who got down to Titanic and picked up one artifact, one piece of former White Star property could technically be deemed the owner of the wreck. So Ballard says it was made clear to him at the time that if he picked up one artifact, he could essentially own Titanic. And he very definitively chose not to do this. But the following year, the French team that he had worked with before, Jean-Louis Michel and the French team, were funded by a consortium of American investors, and they start bringing up artifacts from the ocean floor and would eventually bring up over the course of many expeditions in the 90s and early 2000s, well, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, thousands and thousands of artifacts from this debris field. So the French leased their sub, the Nautil, to this group, which would eventually be known as RMS Titanic Inc. That's what everybody refers to them as. They had a different name at the beginning, but it's it's too confusing to go into all of that right now. We're going to refer to them as RMS Titanic Inc. That's the private group that brought the debris field artifacts up. RMS Titanic Inc. has also raised a chunk of the hull. I've mentioned that before. That currently resides at the Luxor in Vegas. They have also sold pieces of coal from the ocean floor. Also, at one point, a couple was married in a submarine on the bow of the ship. Ballard has openly called all of this an ugly, a quote, ugly carnival. This has resulted in there being two distinct camps, right? There is, I think it's pretty obvious, there is Ballard, who is very much aligned with the Titanic Historical Society, and a lot of the the you know long standing writers and historians of Titanic who argue that no artifacts should have been brought up and then RMS Titanic Inc who obviously took the complete opposite approach and i will say just to play just to explore both sides and present both sides in this debate. And this is a debate that I'll have an entire episode on at some point. But RMS Titanic Inc. does claim that it's guarding the memory and telling the tales of the ship and the survivors. They do claim to have good intentions. And I think it would be really easy to villainize them. And definitely definitely in this episode, because we're focusing on Ballard, but we're going to talk about this I'm going to do a whole episode on this next year. So pause this button 
uh, in some respects on this episode, and we'll, we'll get back to it. At this point, talk about hero making and narrative making, the press start to paint Ballard as a submarine cowboy. And Ballard has openly called oceanography a frontier. This was very, we've got to contextualize this. This is the 80s. This was very Reagan-esque. Reagan conflated himself and his own image was this conflation of cowboy, star, president. So this is this is the narrative right now. This is important to envision this historical moment that Ballard is acting in, the Reagan era in the United States. Ballard didn't want to be known as a scientist. He actually wanted to be known as an explorer. In all of his autobiographies, it's very clear that this is true, that he had been at war with his academic expectations. And we talked about how in some ways that was a very good thing. Reaganomics associated this spirit with unfettered capitalism. And here Ballard fits in as well, because he definitely turned his exploration into profit. And he has said, and this is true, that that Titanic was such a sensational moment that, and and such such a historical moment that people obsess over, that it would help attract funding. He said that he was in a rivalry for funding with the space program. And he said, "quote We're in competition for access to American mines and purse strings." But. It is important to note that he would also go on to personally profit from finding Titanic, largely from his relationship with National Geographic, which started producing TBS programs, coffee table books, children's books, lecture tours that were $10,000 a pop for Ballard to speak. But I will say to his credit, he's very transparent about this. In his book, he writes about how he made money in these ways. He's never tried to hide those things. That those two Ballards can, can coexist. No one is perfect. No one is without their gray areas. And again, we have a tendency to put explorer hero types on pedestals, but they're much more nuanced of people than I think we want to give them credit for. And they're much more imperfect than we want to give them credit for. And I talked about this in the Ismay episode, in the Candy episode. We have to start doing a better job remembering that in historical moments, it is imperfect. Normal, regular people many times people just like us that are the actors in these historical moments. Heroes are the product of a narrative. In these historical moments, these are regular people living them out. And so Ballard is not immune to perhaps maybe some questionable decisions in this profit making from Titanic, just like we are all not immune to, none of us are immune to questionable decisions in so many ways. So again, just a check, just putting another check mark down of, of just keeping all of the angles of this in mind. Oh, forgot to mention he, when he's down at Titanic, he also places a plaque at the wreck dedicated to William Tantum. Like I said, he had died before they actually found Titanic. He had sort of been his and I mean this in a good, sweet way, his sort of partner in crime and in, in really being obsessed with finding it. In Walter Lord's, Walter Lord, here he is, nice to remember. In Walter Lord's intro to the 1987 Ballard book, he says, quote, at first I thought that the discovery might spoil some of the allure. Part of the spell seemed to depend on the great ship, still hauntingly beautiful in her final moments, disappearing beneath the sea forever. But it soon became clear that the discovery actually added to the mystique, a fresh vignette. And I think 
here we are with Walter Lord again. He does such a beautiful job of summing up what we're all thinking, I think, or what people were thinking in that moment and what we think when we conceptualize this moment of discovery. So just a couple of (laughs) side notes after the Titanic discovery. I know we're jumping around a little in the timeline now, and that's because we're moving into a little bit more of a thematic conversation. So I apologize for that, but I'm going to try to Make sure you know where we are in the story. So right after Titanic was found, Jack Graham, oil man Jack, announced that he planned to rent a sub from Reynolds Aluminum, as in the makers of foil. (laughs) I wish I could make this stuff up. I'm not. And recoup his cost of all the failed expeditions on his part. He wanted to go down, get artifacts, and sell them because he was so angry he'd lost so much money trying to find Titanic. Various other entrepreneurs announced plans to run tourist trips down. Uh, Congress passed an act naming it a memorial site, even though it really had no jurisdiction. It begged for an international agreement to not desecrate the site, but the French went on about their work openly, and there was a TV special hosted by Telly Savalas in which he opened up a suitcase from the ocean floor full of coins, bills, and jewelry. Robert Chapaz, head of the company that sponsored the French expedition for artifacts, said, quote, it's strange hearing Americans complain about doing things for profit. Usually it's the Europeans who criticize the Americans for commercial exploitation. Again, it's important to remember to look at it from all sides. Titanic sinking had become an example of how tragic man's faith in technology could be, of course. And here in the 1980s was this moment in which technology, radical, and I cannot express this enough, radical technology, undersea technology, allowed us to go back to Titanic. Earlier that year, in 1986, the Challenger had exploded. This is in the 80s, a moment of rapidly changing and growing technology. And Americans have, Americans have a very tenuous relationship with it because of things like Challenger. But there also is in this Reagan era, this sense of exponential and unlimited growth. So Titanic's discovery and the undersea technology kind of is, is part of all of that. Ballard's friend and sponsor, John Lehman, Reagan's Secretary of the Navy, celebrated Ballard in 1986 as the Navy's, quote, bottom gun in reference to Top Gun, top movie of 1986, and directly sort of places him along Tom Cruise's cowboy Navy fighter pilot, right? Then he's bottom gun because he's that pilot, but of the ocean of this coldest frontier underneath the ocean's surface, a submarine cowboy. Robert Ballard's life after Titanic is an incredibly rich text within itself. There are so many things he's accomplished since then and so many directions his life has taken. It would be impossible for me to for it to be comprehensive here. So if if you're interested, as you should be, I highly, highly suggest you read one of his autobiographies. De- definitely recommend the newest one, Into the Deep from 2021. One of the most tragic parts of his life is that in 1989, his adult son, Todd, is killed in a car accident. Uh, I think he had just turned 21. 
His Robert Ballard takes great pride in his children going out on expeditions with him. All of his children have. Todd actually was able to go out on an expedition with him before he died. Ballard writes really openly about grief and his experiences and, and how the, the death of his son essentially ended his marriage, which had been struggling for a long time. And so many personal things that he writes about. It's very moving. And it really got me thinking about, again, just thinking about the people that we revere as heroes are imperfect people and also people that have suffered through a lot themselves. And I was thinking about his relationship to the Titanic wreck site. And I wonder if his adamant calls to memorialize and to leave untouched the Titanic wreck site and the debris field have anything to do with the processing of his son's death. He writes about being at the site of the car accident and writes about it as a wreckage site, as finding bits of the car, even at the wreckage site and it being kind of a sacred place. And I you know, I wonder if there's a connection there and and who knows, right? And, and it's not really our business to know, but I do think it is beautiful to think about how people's very human experiences inform the other parts of their life as well. So he does go through a divorce with his first wife, Marjorie. He meets his second wife, Barbara Earle, because she is the National Geographic Director of Special Projects for Nat Geo's television division. And they're working, Ballard's working right alongside them. He has his own company now coming out of Finding Titanic, and they're producing TV specials and books. He enters a multi-year deal with Nat Geo to create shows exploring warships lost in the Battle of Guadalcanal and the wreckage of the Lusitania. He also has the Jason Project, which is exploring wrecks. And a lot of this is working with educational programs and bridging that gap, as I spoke about earlier, between academic and scientific discoveries and more popular and the more popular presentation of them through these modes. So he has a lot of a lot of projects. He's got his hand in a lot of projects and he sort of becomes a shipwreck guy. He goes down to Bismarck, he goes down to Lusitania to these warships. He continues to develop technology as he explores shipwrecks. And that's, if you had to sum up Robert Ballard's history and you could only use one sentence, that would be it. He is eventually courted by the Mystic Marine Life Aquarium in Connecticut with the promise of an institute for exploration and that it would also have a permanent Titanic exhibit. He, uh, in August of 1995, he films The Wreckage of the Britannic for a special called Titanic's Lost Sister. Remember, Britannic was the third ship that would eventually be built in the the sister ship group of Olympic Titanic and Britannic. He, and here is where one thing that confuses me, and I haven't really filmed a, formed a full opinion on yet, in terms of the artifact debate, 
He writes and speaks pretty freely and openly about recovering artifacts from other wrecks. So off the coast of Greece, there's his discovery of a sunken 19th century sailing ship and the remnants of two Roman ships. His expedition brings up artifacts like ladles, pots, jars, and... He brings up hundreds of artifacts here. It's the largest concentration of ancient shipwrecks, his this expedition was, ever discovered in deep water, dating to 100 BC all the way to AD 400. So basically, Ballard is really crucial in the discovery of these ancient maritime trade routes. It's a real, <laughs> I mean, it's a huge marker in his career. It's very, very high profile that he was also involved in. He has two more children with his second wife, Barbara. He writes really freely again, it gets very personal, admits that Barbara decides to stay home with them. And he, you know, stays out in the field working and is gone from home a lot. He meets James Cameron or meets back up with James Cameron in the mid-90s. We'll talk about this more again in January. Cameron had actually met up with him right after he found Titanic. Cameron was already interested in it in 1986. They'd already taken a meeting together. And there was already that first whisper of the Titanic script in James Cameron's head in 1986. But when Cameron's filming the movie, in 96. He's calling Ballard, asking questions late at night. Ballard and his second wife had just had their daughter, Emily. So they couldn't go to the Hollywood screening or, or the Hollywood premiere of Titanic, the movie. But Cameron sets up a special screening in DC that they can go to. They go to an 8am screening with their three-week-old daughter, Emily, whose middle name to note is Rose, but you know, he didn't see the movie till after she was born. So I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> I knew what the old lady looked like, Ballard said. And Jim showed me what she looked like as a young lady when she'd sailed from England. Ballard searched for World War II ships to honor his dad's generation. He borrowed lighting gear from Cameron along the way at some point because James Cameron has also developed a lot of undersea technology for Titanic. And we will, I will excitedly also talk about that in January. Ballard has been part of lobbying efforts to seek more funding for ocean exploration. He works with NOAA. Uh, and that has become a huge part of his career and what he views as his legacy is finding ways to funnel funding into ocean exploration. He became a tenured professor of oceanography at the University of Rhode Island, eventually turns back you know, to some of these more traditional academic pursuits in that realm. He designed Hercules, a first robot designed specifically for remote undersea archaeological excavations. 5,200 pounds, this thing, with high-def cameras, manipulator arms to lift artifacts. <sighs> sorry, to, sorry to sound like a Debbie Downer. It's just I don't quite get that. It's very selective about which shipwrecks artifacts can be brought up from. But he designs a robot that has arms specifically to lift artifacts. So it can't just be 
being against bringing any artifacts up. So there's more nuanced conversation to have here, even with Ballard. And it has a suction, Hercules has a suction system for excavating ancient shipwrecks. He created a nonprofit, Ocean Exploration Trust, to basically manage his ownership of a ship he bought. He, he bought a ship, the Nautilus, and began to run an, a completely new education program. The Nautilus was originally an East German hydrographic vessel that he had to sort of refurbish and outfit in new and different ways. He, at age 70, found out he was actually dyslexic and always has been and didn't know it. His daughter was diagnosed with it and he figured out that he is also dyslexic. So he has actually been a huge advocate for dyslexia, for research, and actually speaks about it a lot when he does interviews now that he uh, views it as an important part of his legacy to bring awareness to dyslexia and help people learn how to manage that. And then Finally, what's interesting, and I, you know, I say finally, but I didn't even cover 10% of it. I mean, he has been down to so many shipwrecks. He has been part of so many expeditions. And since he purchased his own ship, like I mentioned, the Nautilus, he's explored parts of the ocean that we never thought we would. He's part of mapping systems. One of his big career goals still at 79 is to participate in mapping the ocean floors, huge undertaking. And he seems to never stop, doesn't want to stop, which is awesome and and kind of a gorgeous thing in a human being. Uh, his latest endeavor in 2019, and this was part of a TV special too, was actually to try and find Amelia Earhart's downed plane. So, you know, going all the way back to Loch Ness and those first times in which he participated in sort of more popular history kind of narrative and quest, he's still doing that. And I think it's kind of amazing. He's still combining his research, his constant development of technologies for the ocean floor with a more popular history. And he actually plans to go back. They didn't find the plane. And he says it's not a failure because a failure is only when you're done trying and it didn't happen, but he plans to go back. He also, to note, really puts an emphasis on the number of female staff and crew that he works with now. And his daughter, Emily, is a big part of his projects now. And I think that the emphasis on the female future of the oceanography field is really important. And it's needed. He needs to be saying these things because the his, the study of the Titanic has been such a male thing the writing of Titanic history has been such a male process. The finding of Titanic, the finding of shipwrecks, oceanography has been such a male process and profession. And that shift into more women being involved in these processes is so crucial. So he does need to be talking about this. I'm so glad that he is. And it ties in with my podcast and me because I think I have not been shy about letting you guys know that a big goal of mine and a big part of why I'm doing this podcast is to help, is to open up the narrative and make room for women to study Titanic, write about Titanic, talk about Titanic, be part of 
this conversation we haven't been historically. And I may make more enemies for saying that. We haven't been. It's a fact, but we are now. And we'll continue to be, just like he's pointed out that in oceanography, there are more and more women playing crucial roles, and there will continue to be. And that's wonderful. He also has a very unique kind of sense of environmentalism going on. He, you know, points out in interviews and writings a lot about population growth, how the planet cannot sustain the population growth that it has. He's been really blunt and really realistic in his observations about the sustainability of life on Earth. And he has openly called the planet, you know, an entity, an animal onto itself that we have angered. He, even though he comes from this, you know, like I said, raised in an Eisenhower household, seems to come from a more conservative political background, military involvement, that sort of thing. Obviously, like Reagan, you know, the Titanic discovery happens in the Reagan era. He's very intimately tied to the Reagan administration. But all that to say, he seems to have evolved and has a very multifaceted opinion about environmentalism. He seems very aware of climate change. He he seems to be an environmentalist. I'll just go ahead and say it. I've heard him talk about environmental issues recently. I think it's pretty amazing. I mean, he's a scientist. He knows. <laughs> And he perhaps more than anybody, I mean, he's been to the depths of this cold frontier, the ocean bottom, this place that we, 90 to 95% of, we don't even know. There's so much we don't even know about the oceans and what is contained within them. So he understands size and perspective. And I just think it's, you know, it's important to point out that he is progressive and he never sits and stagnates. He is part of the conversation. He's don't shy away from that either. I think it's crucial, the most crucial issue of our time. And Ballard's, he's in it. He's in that conversation at 79 years old. I applaud him for that. And also he remains very relevant in his conversation about telepresence on the ocean floor and telecommuting. He actually, you know, very recently has spoken out that in the COVID era, he started working from home more. And a a lot of that has to do with his age. But he sees a huge potential for using telepresence, for using video cameras that can go to these depths to explore, not only to do the research, but to bring the research back to us all. And he sees a very sort of democratic future for what he terms sort of underwater museums, this idea that, you know, you could take a site like Titanic, and he's talked about it in terms of Titanic, you could take a site like Titanic, and instead of bringing up artifacts and damaging the site. And for the record, he does, he went back in, I believe it was 2012 to Titanic for another documentary. And they have, there are side by side photos where you can see documented damage that subs and some of these artifact expeditions have done to the Titanic site. And again, we'll talk about that more next year when I do an episode on it. But he argues that 
it would be much more advantageous to have just a telepresence down there. And then the wreck of Titanic could be something that anyone with a a laptop and an internet connection could access. So it's very democratic future that he speaks of in terms of underwater exploration and bringing those experiences to the masses, almost like a museum that you can log on and be a part of. It's intriguing. There's so much more to it. I wish I had time to talk about that more. I mean, Robert Ballard, if you ever hear this episode or if anyone connected to him ever hears this and thinks that he might be willing to talk to me, I would... uh, be floored and so happy. That would be incredible. I would love to talk about all of these things with him. And I wish I had time to dissect all of the moments of his career more. There's so many. There's also an entire history of shipwrecks, a history of discovering shipwrecks and the raising of artifacts. And that's such a complex academic, political, and moral debate. And like I said, we will We'll talk about it in an episode next year in terms of Titanic, but really just shipwrecks in general could be the subject of a complete podcast. Someone should do that. It could be multiple volumes of anything. There are an estimated 3 million shipwrecks on the ocean floor from 10,000-year-old canoes to you know vessels like Titanic. Some estimate the worth of artifacts under the water to be somewhere along the line of six along the lines of sixty million dollars. Diving operations are expensive and time consuming, and they require outfitted ships like Ballard's. So, for as much as Ballard espouses the democratization of the seas, it's truly only the elite that have access to these sites and. To be fair, he's obviously working to correct some of that. A big part of these debates are political and involve jurisdiction over water, international water, huge patches of ocean. And this begs the question, right, who has any real jurisdiction over a part of the world? Sometimes something like 13,000 feet below the ocean surface, like I said, 90 to 95% of which is unexplored territory in a technical sense. So Technically speaking, the ship's original owner has viable right to ownership on a shipwreck, but that right can be superseded by the country which owns the national waters that it's discovered, or sometimes by the country of origin of the ship. It's complicated. Uh, Even with Titanic, it gets really complicated, and we'll talk about that in the future. And I'm really going to try to get someone on the show who can speak with me about these issues, some sort of expert. So if you And also, if you work for any of the Titanic museums or current exhibitions, please contact me. I would love to be in dialogue with you. I'd love for you to come on the podcast. For now, as we end this calendar year for Unsinkable and head into the series of episodes on the 1997 film, which will start in late January, this episode is crucial text for similarities between Robert Ballard and James Cameron. You'll see their stories are often parallel. Cameron is a bit younger than Ballard, but their goals as explorers are so similar as to make your head spin once you start reading or listening to me talk about it. And Cameron has been in contact with Ballard since 1986, like I said, when those first stirrings of the movie, we all know, um, began in his brain. Over the past weeks and months. And this episode has been brewing for a long time because I just never was quite ready to do it because I was always reading another book about him or still reading his memoir or or watching so many of his, you know, 
talks that he's given that are on YouTube. But one of the things I realized is that Ballard is perhaps not spoken about enough outside the Titanic community. He is an explore, a true explorer, a true American explorer, someone who has put their money where their mouth is and worked and developed technology and, you know, physically gone to these historic sites that we all are obsessed with. And he's been there, you know, Titanic, Lusitania, the Bismarck, and now he's searching for Amelia Earhart. It's just, it's, I've been blown away by his life. It's pretty incredible. And like I said, I know I've sounded hard, a little hard on him over the course of this episode, but I just, please don't view it that way. Just what really is going on is I have put my historian's cap on and I I want to, like I always say, crack it open, crack the story open. Let's look at things in a more realistic and blunt manner. Let's talk about class, gender. Let's, you know, just, you can read the narrative, you can read, you can read the histories that have been written up until now of Titanic. I want to do something new, have a different conversation, divert the conversation in new and fun ways. And I hope that's what episodes like this do for you a little bit while also giving you all of the facts. I, you know, research-based, academic in nature, but I hope also makes you just want to go look up more, read more, because that's what learning and and being passionate about something and just branches on a tree, right? You're on one branch, you jump to another because you get interested in something else. That's how all these episodes come together. I just, I start the research and I follow little trails and little branches where they lead. And you know, sometimes it's rambling. I will say I've, I've started to go a little bit more off script. When I pod lately, I'm starting to feel a little bit more confident just kind of talking to you in a conversational tone. So I hope that that is preferred on your end. And I apologize if sometimes I am a tad rambling. I promise some of my episodes will be shorter than this. (laughs) I promise sometimes. All right. Some very important business to my latest Patreon members. Thank you so much. As always, it's epic when you join. I do not take it lightly. Every time I receive a notification that I have a new Patreon, I raise my hand and scream with joy. It's it's amazing that you've chosen to invest in the podcast, that you view what I'm doing as something valuable enough to be a part of it like that. So I want to thank my three newest members, Amy, Katja, and Wesley. Thank you for joining the Unsinkable VIP Club. If you are someone who can do that. You can give a few dollars a month to Unsinkable to help me produce the podcast. Money goes right into the pod. Then please consider it is patreon.com backslash unsinkable pod. Again, never ever expected, but if it is something you can do, it is so appreciated. I am an independent podcaster and podcasting is... (laughs) wonderful, but you know, it is expensive. It is time consuming. So that is a big help if you're able to do that. Thank you again to my newest members. And if you are a Patreon member at any tier, you have access to bonus episodes and my bonus episodes. And I have one that posted, um, recently it was my first one and there'll be another one on December 31st. 
they're not flimsy little things. They are full episodes. My first one, I think, was 40 to 45 minutes. It was on some of the ship's cooks and bakers. They're just little side projects. They're, you know, topics that maybe I don't have enough for a full unsinkable episode or maybe continuing a thread from an episode or maybe sometimes just something so random that I just... I say, hey, you know, I want to take a break from the research I'm doing for one of the main episodes and I want to go down a little alley. And so on Patreon, you can vote right now for what the next episode will be. And then that one will be on December 31st. It's good. I really, really think it's good content. All right. So that is that is bye for the year. Unless you are a Patreon member on the 31st, I have poured a little eggnog here at the end of the recording for this episode. I am officially in holiday mode. I hope that you all stay safe and have a wonderful holiday season, no matter what holidays you celebrate or don't celebrate. Have a great winter holiday time. I hope you are with friends and family and that the new year brings great things for everybody. I hope it brings good things for all of us and we all are able to be hopeful. Times are still quite trying all around. Thank you for being with me here for this first phase of Unsinkable. This has been an amazing time in my life to start Unsinkable. And as this calendar year ends, I'm thinking a lot about just what I've accomplished with it. And it's it's amazing to be in communication with all of you. Thank you so much for being such active listeners And I look forward to talking more in the new year. I will be back in late January with the first in the series of episodes about the James Cameron film. And then from there, I've got so much lined up. I can't wait for you to hear about it all. I will see you soon. Thank you. All right. Cheers, you guys. Bye.